I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Click. Here it was again. He was walking along the cliff and it had come again. Click. Would the word snap or crack describe it better? It was a noise inside his head and yet it was not a noise. It was the sound which a noise makes when it abruptly ceases. It had a temporarily deafening effect. It was as though one had blown one's nose too hard and the outer world had suddenly become dim and dead. And we're live. So we are in Elscourt Square. Yes. In West London. Uh, and we're here to discuss Hangover Square. Hangover Square. We've got a special guest today as well. Yes. Hello, Andy. Hello. Dulwich Raider. Dulwich Raider. Yeah, he's a, a guest from the uh, Deserter podcast. A rival podcast. A rival podcast covering very similar ground. Sort of. <laughs> Click. So do you want to do you want to give the setting for the book? Yeah, so I, basically we're talking about 3839. The main character in it is called George Bone and he is a schizophrenic. Although schizophrenia was not that mm, well not known. Not a word used in the book. Yeah. And, uh, it is used in the book actually. Is it? Is well, it? actually in the intro maybe. It's just in the intro. Well, you know he didn't write the intro, right? <sighs> He's very specific about these things. You know, you, you know that intros are generally written by other people. So, <laughs> after the fact. The problem with having you here, Andy, is he's so annoyed <laughs> that I bested him over a lot of knowledge of Brighton Rock that he wants to try and do I it. I did hear Humili- that you're, you're over-reading. So he's trying to humiliate me in front of his friends. How many times have you read this about Hangover Square? You're the public school bully, mate. It's your job. You're Peter. Um, and you are? I'm George. George, which and makes you... Netta. <laughs> Netta. So Netta is the subject of George's yes, so he hangs, lustful affections. Basically, he hangs around Earl's Court. He hasn't got a job because he inherited a bit of money. He's blacked on his aunt. He won He's the pools. He's got £300 in war loans. And he hangs out with other people who don't have proper jobs. Yeah. In fact, there's a nice piece in the... Uh, hold this a minute. There's a nice piece of description of who they are. Drunken, lazy, impecunious, neurotic, arrogant, pub-crawling, cheap lot of swine. That was what they all were, including him and Netta. She was an awful little drunk, though she had a marvellous head. (laughs) She never got up till half past twelve, just chain-smoke in bed till it was time to drop over and into the nearest pub, only she had to have a man to take her over because she didn't want to be taken for a prostitute. This is why we need a song from the Deserter podcast here. I was going to say, there's a reason why Andy might be here. It does sound very familiar, that crowd. Bringing some... uh, 
bringing some domain knowledge, as they say. So your blog is about that kind of loafing life, isn't it? It is, yeah. Definitely work, working less. And Shirt, rest and fun. play. Shirt, rest and play, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you would fit in very well with this lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed the book very much for that very reason. You know, sitting... Uh, uh, unfortunately, all their drinking is so abjectly miserable, it is. isn't it? It, it is. really takes all the fun out of it. It um, is. I think uh, on Deserter we like to enjoy it a bit more. But Hamilton's drinking seemed to be like that as well. I yeah, mean, it's absolutely, like yeah, yeah. The, but I've re- I, I've read two biographies, Tim, having been, <laughs> had been put out by the Brighton Rock Farago. I've read two biographies of Hatcher Hamilton. The thing is, they're both basically the same biography, because they're both well, based on... life. They're both, well, they're, both, they're all based on the letters he wrote to his brother, Bruce. But uh, both of them, they, they both describe how he kind of starts drinking, but they don't really give a, a reason for it, other mm. than that he was obviously quite profoundly messed up in all sorts mm. of very bizarre... Mm ways about his family and everything the family are extraordinarily mad they say mm. his drinking got a lot worse after he got run over yes which we're going to go to the site of where he was run over mm. right, yeah. so george bone starts the book on boxing day 1938 yes walking uh, the cliffs near hunston in norfolk north norfolk you hate when i say hunston don't you well that's only what people who don't come from norfolk call it <laughs> obviously um, here's another bloody car parking right by us what yeah. is this is it like a hot spot well, it's a road, I think it's called. <laughs> I hate these cars. <laughs> and it, so he, he takes the train to London. There's quite a lot of stuff about what he's reading on the train. Yeah. He's reading um, Hopalong. Let's Cassidy. not go through the whole details of the story. No, because I've got a lot of stuff. Anyway, it's not going to make the edit, mate. He comes, <laughs> he comes to London, he comes to his hotel, and then the rest of the book is about him basically chasing Netta. Well, the twist is this, isn't it? Is that he has these moments where his mind goes click. Yeah, and he switches. And he becomes a different person where he wants to kill Netta yeah. rather than be obsessively in love with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's two characters. And the suspense sort of, is uh, that the moments when he's going to go click and is he really going to see it through and kill her or not? Or yeah. is he going to go click again yeah. and be okay? Yeah. It's a very dark novel. Hangover Square is not the place but a state of mind. Can Take we say a that? walk around Hangover Square. Mm. It's, it's what, being hungover. Yeah, exactly. I read that Martin Amis thought that Hangover Square was too good a title for the book. It's a bit mean. That's well, quite a Martin Amis thing to yeah, say. That's yeah. a way of talking down other authors, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. There's quite a lot of talking down Supported. at Hamilton. Yeah, oh, really, really, I found yeah. some old LRB stuff that was like reviewing new editions of the books, even in the, like, the 90s. Mm. Right. And people were like, John Bailey and Terry Eagleton, people like that, were going, well, you know. The Terry Eagleton one is very good, actually, because it sort of says he's sort of like top of the second division could that get promoted right. to the first. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, I don't think Eagleton approves, his, approves of Hamilton's... Like <laughs> yeah, a bit like Norwich. Patrick Hamilton Yo-yo is team. Norwich he's a yo-yo novelist. <laughs> he's the Norwich of all That's quite good. Well, he ended up in Sheringham. He died in Sheringham. Died in Sheringham, Just yeah. And do you know where his ashes are scattered? Outside your house? No. Hunston. Op- opposite the Blakeney Hotel. Again, this whole podcast is revolving around the Blakeney Hotel. We did have a house in Burnham Overy Stade. He had a house there with did he? Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then he, but then he ended up. He ran out of money. Before and he war. was in a home in Sheringham. No, before the war, he had a house in. But he, he said it was too boring. Mm. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> this whole podcast is going to be some weird old dig now, isn't it? Here it is. Very. <laughs> I started by knowing stuff. <laughs> God, that's annoying. <laughs> it's very annoying. That's it. Oh, wait, the train. 
goodbye to the square, the gardens, the mansions, the pennywerns and neverns, the private hotels, the smiths, the station, the Turkish baths, the ABC and express restaurants, the pubs, the florists and tobacconists, all the bleak scenery of his long disgrace and disaster. Goodbye forever. The grey ending rain was cool and blessed on his face. <laughs> so that's Earl's Court. That's the that's the, that's that's the, the, the landscape of, of the book right there, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, very good. Earl's Court. What do you know about Earl's Court, Lloyd? Um, what do I know about Earl's Court? Well, it used to have a big exhibition centre here, didn't it? Uh, yeah, it's gone now, though. It's gone now. Actually, only two years ago was it crumped. Before that, it was a uh, pleasure fields, wasn't it? It's a fun oh. fair here. Right. And at that point, Earl's Court was being developed as sort of rather bourgeois centre of amusements yeah. and family homes with lots yeah, of yeah. servants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then by the time of this book, which is 1938, it's got a bit seedier as a place, I can say. And then the other thing that I think is relevant is that the Earl's Court Exhibition Centre, that was opened in yeah. 1937. Yeah. This book is based in 1938. Yeah. Does he ever, ever mention no. the enormous crowds of people who must have come to, to, to the exhibition centre and been in all the pubs? Does he actually come out of this no, exit? No, no. Basically, there were military tattoos in that first year with like yeah. tens, if not hundreds of thousands yeah. of people renting bedsits yeah. and eating and drinking in the pubs while they then were at the exhibition. Mm-hmm. Not mentioned at all. More no. importantly, in July 1938, it was Oswald Mosley's, as far as I know, his only rally in the UK. I think July, he had other rallies, but July not a huge indoor rally. Is a picture of it? Yeah, oh, yes. Absolutely terrifying. It, it was, was a, straight yeah. out of 1984. The yeah. Earl's Court Peace Rally was the largest indoor political meeting in the history of the world, held on Sunday the 16th of July 1939 less than seven weeks before Britain declared war on Germany. So when George is wandering around here obsessing about Netta the actress and Peter the fascist. This is why, this is allegedly, so this is from oswaldmosley.com. We are going if it lies within us, and it lies within us because within us is the spirit of the English to say that our generation shall not die like rats in Polish holes. They shall not die, but they shall live to see above their heads the English sky, to feel beneath their feet the English soil, and to enjoy the fair English countryside. So there would have been 30,000 fascists wandering around here. Yeah. Did he mention yeah. that? Well, well he I mentioned mean, Peter is Peter's quite clearly fascist. a fascist, isn't he? Yes, mean, he's, he's possibly an embodiment of those. Yes, yeah, so Peter is Netta's other lover. As well, yeah. He wears polar necks. I'll be talking about that. Why that's <laughs> suspect. People who wear polar necks are suspect. I'm just putting it out there, listener. Yeah. If you're wearing one while listening to this podcast, take it off. Here's how. Here's how. Here's how. Playmates, here's how, here's how, here's how. When you met in the morning, all you talked about was last night. How blind you were, how blind Mickey was. My God, you bet he had a hangover. Taking a little stroll round Hangover Square, that was Mickey's crack. So-and-so might have been comparatively sober, etc, etc. And when you had had a lot more to drink, you felt fine again. You went crashing round to lunch, upstairs at the Black Heart, the table by the fire where you ragged the pale waiter and called attention to yourselves. So we're at, which pub are we at? We're in the Earl's Court Tavern. We're in the Earl's Court Tavern, and in in some references that I researched on the internet, people believed that this is the Black Heart. But it's missing something. It doesn't have an upstairs. As far as we can tell, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it. They they go upstairs a fair bit, don't they? They do like to go upstairs. 
And this is the nearest one to Netters, did you just say that? Sorry, yes, I that's was right. Thinking about something else. But uh, uh, there is a point in the book where they get barred. He, George goes into a pub that he knows that they've been barred from for being too rowdy and probably a bit fascist. You always get barred from your local pub, don't you? So it's likely that Netter was barred from the Earl's Court Tavern and then had to go down the road to the next one. It's amazing how often, when you search search for the Black Heart Inn, it's amazing how often it's mentioned. It is mentioned a lot, so it's quite a big Mm. deal. But I don't think it's this one. Does that mean we'll simply have to go to all the pubs in Earl's Court? Until it feels right. Until it feels right. I knew this was going to be I think they might start feeling right. the further along we go. Hello boys, have a drink? Yeah. yeah. Where should we go? The pig and whistle? No. Oh, the rose and crown? No. The flute and the earache? No. But where shall we go? To the victory arms. Oh, the jolly old victory arms. Okay, well here we are. Uh, what are you going to have? I'll have a double brandy. Double brandy. I'll have a double scotch. Double scotch. I'll have a large sherry. A uh, large sherry. Double gin and tonic. Double gin and tonic. Now the large pot. Okay, sailor. Um, six bitters, please, miss. Now is the time to be cheerful The time to be sociable too Come out with me for the bit of a So you just said you don't know what you're drinking? No uh, so Would you like me to start? Her thoughts, however, resembled those of a fish Something seen floating in a tank, brooding, self-absorbed, frigid, moving solemnly forward to its object, or veering slowly sideways without fully conscious motivation. She had been born, apparently, without any natural predilection towards thought or action, and the circumstances of her early life had seemed to render both unnecessary, spoiled from the earliest days because of her physical beauty, made a fuss of, given into, beset with favours, the fulfilment of her desires going ahead at roughly the same pace as their conception of her. She had become totally impassive, thought and action were atrophied, having no inherent generosity, as George perceived, having no instinct to spoil or make a fuss of anything in return, she had become like a fish. (laughs) Wow, that's such a good paragraph. It's mean, isn't it? It's very, very mean. So we're in the Prince of Tech pub. Prince of Tech. And we're drinking, we've got three... We've got a selection of drinks. We've got a... Just clink them so I can get... Oh my God! What Here's we how got, we've got Here's a we've got a gin in it, right? Which is gin and uh, sweet vermouth, yeah. Martini Rosso. We've got a gin and French, which yeah. is gin and dry vermouth, and we've got a gimlet, which is gin and lime cordial. They're all mentioned in the book. They're all mentioned in the book, and we we're drinking out of them fairly. I mean, begin to slow my way. <laughs> <laughs> we're drinking we're drinking out of them fairly indiscriminately. It's one of the best breakfasts I've ever had. <laughs> and we think the Prince of Tech is a really good candidate for the black heart. It's shaping up, isn't it? Because we went upstairs. They go upstairs, they drink at the uh, table upstairs by the fire. Yep. This has an upstairs... With proper old floorboards. With proper old floorboards. So we think there would have been a fireplace up there. Yeah. It's not there anymore. Yeah. So we're quite liking this as being the black heart. Yeah, the black heart. And do you think the name is a nod to their sort of general dystopian behaviour? Yes, and I also think it's a reference to black shirts and the blackness of fascism. Mm. So we're going to talk a little bit about Netta 
you yes. get that fine reading about who she is and why this portrait of her is this very poisonous well, you quite like her. Well, I did actually. We, we, we were talking about this in the in the other pub we were in. Well, you know, we always have this problem with books we look at that are in the of this era that they're usually the ones written by men, anyway. Yes, yes, yes. Usually, usually terribly misogynistic. Yes. But the, the thing about this one is that the, the netter character, yes, there is a there is some misogyny, but this is actually just about a really vile person. Yeah. In the eyes of the author and George Bowe. Yes. But I would. I'm going to contend that I don't think she does anything that bad in this book well, you she gets a bit tired she gets like women who walk tiresome. around with their, without any skirts on that's the, that's the, <laughs> you've, got, you've always had a she's soft got, spot leaves the door open she, you can come in have a drink have a beer help yourself I think she's very honest later. I'll give her that she's very honest but she is quite rude isn't she she is rude yeah but also there's the kind she knows of what she wants. there's the weird off screen stuff with Peter she's obviously having some kind of an affair with Peter George finds him in a cupboard in Chiswick at yeah, some point who's, mm. a, who's obviously a fascist she likes Peter for instance because of her knowledge possessed by a few others of his past the fact that he had been twice in jail he had been in jail on one occasion for assaulting and wounding a man at a political meeting yeah. and then another for killing a pedestrian with his car while drunk and this she liked this stimulated her she liked the whole atmosphere she liked the deeds themselves and she liked the jail both provided something bloody brutal and unusual yes which and gave it, him a halo of originality wow so That's, she's quite disturbed in her own right yeah, yeah, yeah. it might be said that this feeling for violence and brutality for the pageant and panorama of fascism on the continent formed her principal disinterested aesthetic pleasure she only liked what affected her personally and physically and immediately. Mm. Sleep, warmth, a certain amount of company and talk, drinks, getting drunk, good food, taxis, ease. Yeah. You're like again now, aren't I you? I am. That, that, that's warm oh, to me This is the one. In secret, <laughs> we're, 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 gonna, we're piling on Netta now. In secret, she liked pictures of marching regimented men. In secret, she was physically attracted by Hitler. She did not really think that Mussolini that looked like a funny burglar. She liked the uniforms, the guns, the breeches, the boots, the swastikas, the shirts. Oh, uh, yeah, all right. Here I don't, right I, off I don't like it. No, no, no. Minister of Transport, I am out to help all who use the streets, including, of course, motorists and traders. My concern is to relieve traffic congestion, which delays the motorists and prevents people from shopping. <laughs> to leave a car in a main street as it would be to leave an empty train on a main line. Okay, so we're standing on Logan Place. Logan Place, cars, just off Wells Court Road. We're looking up at some flats. We think Netted lived around here, and one of the reasons we think that is this is where Patrick Hamilton was run over standing on the wall so I'll read it out this is from Sean French's biography an extremely inattentive motorist driving along Lexham Gardens the other side of the road from us might cross the large and heavy busy Ellscourt Road in the belief that Logan Place on the other side was a direct continuation in fact the roads are slightly askew with Logan Place from the point of view of the driver from Lexham Gardens moved slightly to the left thus the young man who was driving correctly on the left hand side of Lexham Gardens plunged across Earl's Court Row without stopping and suddenly found himself not just on the right-hand side of Logan Place but up on the pavement. Hamilton, with a speeding car on one side and a high wall on the other, 
There was no escape. Yep. He was hit and carried along on top of the car before being thrown off. So we're standing by that wall right now. Hamilton was taken to the nearby St Mary Abbott's Hospital. His left leg and arm was so severely broken that the bone was projecting through the skin. Both bones in the wrist were broken and he mm. suffered a number of severe flesh wounds. His nose was virtually ripped off. Oof. For a week he was in a critical condition. Right, and then he was horribly disfigured for the rest of his life, He right? was, and he was very self-conscious, self-conscious about it. And that was in 1932. <laughs> in 1932. So in 1940 he decides, where shall I put a location? So he writes this. He so turned Netta Langdon. Netta Longdon. Longdon, sorry. Who's the actress he's, that George is obsessing about in the book. Uh, so George turned into Earls Court Road and he walked down towards the station. We've had this yeah. business where occasionally he walks up to the station yeah. and sometimes down to the station. It seems to be the same direction. Mm. Make up your mind. Is it up or mood. down? It's all about how much he's had to drink. Yeah. He passed the station and contemplated having a drink at one of the pubs on the right. No, he might miss her. It was a quarter past seven. She didn't usually go out till about half past. He crossed over Cromwell Road and looked up to see if there was a light in her flat. He couldn't see one, but you often couldn't if the curtains were properly drawn. He felt curiously numb. He often did feel numb like this just before meeting her. Yeah. OK, so he's now chosen as the exact spot for where Netta lives to be where he got run over. And also almost directly opposite where his sister lived. Where his sister lived. His so big we, sister, is she older than him? How are we going to unpack that? <laughs> Why does he equate being horribly disfigured and run over with obsessing about women in his life? And why, does he, why is he always talking about going to Maidenhead with his sister? throughout the book oh that's where he's going to be happy after yeah, he's with his sister do you think she's alive no now look I want to talk about cars just yeah. briefly I found an article in the mail online which I subscribed yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah. obviously how come up with mail online <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, an article by Juliet Gardner two, 2010 how the 30s saw Britain fall in love with the car and become a nation of road hogs here is the flamboyant Leslie Horbelisha newly appointed Minister of Transport in Ramsay MacDonald's National Government was crossing Camden High Street in North London when he ran slap bank into one of the increasing menaces of the age. A sports car shot along the street without stopping. It was only by standing stock still that the Minister was saved from serious injury or worse. Interesting. Ironically, at the time, Hor Belisha was involved in a public relations exercise to demonstrate how to use what were known as uncontrolled crossings, introduced as one way of trying to halt the slaughter of pedestrians on British roads. Mm. Now here, it says here, in 1934, the highest ever numbers of road casualties, 7,343 deaths and 231,603 injuries, was recorded... Right, this compares within two... Two million cars? Yes. With the, this, exactly. That's like, a, that's like a, an accident for every other car. Yes. But it said half the deaths were of pedestrians, and of these, three quarters occurred in built-up areas. Mm. Hor Belisha spoke of this as mass murder. Wow. I can believe it. Right, so now you can start to see why Hamilton had a thing about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Peter in this book, Hangover Square, is... What did you say? He's got a whiff of what? Great Portland Street. <laughs> yes. So he's describing which is where the, the main car dealing, car showrooms were on Great Portland Street in the, in the 30s. Oh, right, I didn't get that illusion, yeah. Uh, and then the final thing I want to say, so... <laughs> I'm terrified for Andy's sake. No, I, we want to see him run <laughs> over. Chelsea Trattner We want to see him run over. My nose! <laughs> <laughs> so it says here, there were fervent defenders of the car... Colonel Moore Brabazon, a Conservative MP, was a wealthy maverick with a pioneer's love of speed and a robust sense of humour. He once piloted an aircraft with a pig as his passenger. 
and he had a careless disregard for the lives of pedestrians. He demanded, why such concern over 7,000 road deaths a year? More than 6,000 people commit suicide every year, and nobody makes a fuss about that. <laughs> Unbelievable. He said, nobody who drives a motor vehicle in the streets of London can fail to be astounded at the folly of which pedestrians are capable. The risks they take... This is the colonel, presumably. Yes, the risks they take appall the man at the wheel of the motor car, who it is no exaggeration to say is constantly saving the life of walkers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started on lady drivers. They went to the Rockingham over the way, mm -hmm. and when they had had their first beer, George suggested they should go on somewhere else. Yeah. George had a look in his eye when he suggested this, which made Johnny fancy that he had some ulterior motive in moving on, but nothing was said about it, and they went out into the street. They went past the post office and ABC, and then turned down a narrow road on their right, which led indirectly towards the Cromwell Road. Halfway down this, they came to a small pub into which George led him. They got a beer at the counter and then sat at a table covered with green linoleum near the door. The long, warm, bright days still persisted and the door of the pub was flung and fastened back. It was cool, dark and restful inside and pleasant with the peaceful beginnings of the little house's evening trade. And here we are. It's quite big, this pub, though. What is this pub called? It's called the King's Head. Right. But it, it, it accords exactly to... That. The direction, the direction is in the right place. Yes. So this is this is the other pub. The Rockingham is now called the Court Field. Opposite the station. Should you want to go on this pub crawl? But in the pub, in the bar here, he says he was not pleased. Johnny was not pleased by what he saw, either from his own point of view as a judge of individuals generally. He's talking about Netter and Peter here. Yeah. Or from the point of view of George's happiness in particular. It flashed across his mind, in fact, that George had got in with a rather bad lot. Mm. He didn't like the look of the man at all. He did not like his general carriage, his fair, cruel face, his fair guardsman's moustache, his eccentricity of dress, his hatlessness. <laughs> he's just he's nitpicking. He's nitpicking. His check yeah. trousers and light grey sweater with polar neck. Yeah. Sensible enough, no doubt, but in this case assumed one was certain not by a humble man who desired to be sensible, but by a scornful, ultra-masculine man who decided to single himself out from the herd and wear a uniform while others may do with a plain shirt and collar. Hello. What, what could he Peter. mean? What could he mean by that? Yeah. He, wasn't he described as wearing his moustache as part of the uniform at one point as well? Well, the whole thing about uniforms is a rather contentious thing, of course, as we do, we know in this time. Mm -hmm. I didn't realise this, but obviously, so black shirts initially come from... Mussolini, mm -hmm. and they, but they were still uh, collar and tie. They had a black tie and a black collar. So the, it, it's Mosley who invents the idea of uh, a uniform that doesn't that does away with that in order to actually sort of talk about not being an office waller and not being part oh, really? of the establishment. So not wearing a tie, exactly. And in fact, the polo neck. It's it, this is so. This is all weird. Because the person who really uh, made the polo neck fashionable in the 1920s and 30s, yeah. Noel Coward. <laughs> so from his base in St Margaret's Bay. <laughs> no, but so, and, and it was therefore a, a sign of being not part of 
uh, being arty and stepping out of conventional society. But then, Mosley looks at this and goes, that's a strong look. Lots of young men seem to like that look. But he then fashions it, he remodels it, based on his own interest in fencing. Oswald Mosley was a rather proficient fencer. And so the, his outfit is a black fencing shirt, sporting shirt. But the whole point about the polo neck... The fencing shirt's got like a... It's got yeah, like so a the polo neck... The other reason why uh, Noel Coward, they took it on, was it was sportswear. So it's that... You know, do you remember when we were doing the Riddle of the Sands podcast? Yeah. We were talking about how they were wearing jersey and Jaeger jersey. Yeah. And it was all coming in. It was, And the women were liking it because it was allowing them to be sporty and wear yeah. a sort of slightly stretchy yeah. jersey type, you know, sort of more fitted stuff for cycling and stuff like that. So that in the 20s and 30s, it became a big deal about wearing sports... The first time you could sort of wear sportswear, but at a restaurant. Yeah. And then it's also about being clingy and a cult of the body. Yeah. So it's got sexual connotations as well. Yeah. So all of that is going into Oswald Mosley thinking, you know what we ought to wear as fascists is slightly sporty. Black. Show off our muscles. It's something a bit like Mussolini's thing, where we take the shirt and collar off, we model it to my fencing jacket that I like to wear out all the time. And Noel Coward likes it. That must be good. Mm. And then Peter's picked all of that up, hasn't he? Peter's picked all of that up, of uh, that it makes me look sporty and male, and also a bit fascist, and a bit theatrical. So he's liking the whole look. All it's quite good, isn't it? Because this whole book is it's like, it's got all the... The 30s were really seriously messed up time. Yeah. Well, but then of course it got banned, and I, I had not. Well, Poland really, got banned. No, uni- wearing a uniform. The Public Order Act of 1936, which amongst other things banned political uniforms and quasi-military-style organisations, and came into effect on the 1st of January 1937. So after 1937, Peter couldn't wear his uniform, but he could wear a Poland a, a, a grey Polonet with a jacket. Yeah. And still, still send have. off the vibe. Yeah. It's, like, it's like a wearing an earring in your left ear. Easy, tiger. Click. Mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why? Why? <laughs> so this is the pub where his he meets his friend Johnny. Johnny, who's a thea- who's the accountant? Yeah, he's the accountant. Gerald Carstairs and Alan. Johnny seems to figure her out quite quickly. That was being a bit of a fraud. Yeah, absolutely. Which is what makes the last bit so devastating when George thinks Johnny's kind of. Got off with it. Got off with Taken it. Taken it to Brighton. So that's the other reason why we chose this book, isn't it? Because we did Brighton Rock. Well, this and is this supposed book... to be about a Brighton trilogy, but we've spent the second part of it mainly in Earl's Court. Yeah, we will go to Brighton, though, won't we? Yeah. So the book, the, the, bits of the that. book that he goes to Brighton twice. Yes, he book. does. Yeah. So he goes down once and stays in a hotel just off Castle Square. So when we've sobered up, we'll go to Brighton. I'm perfectly co- cogent tonight. You're, po- you're, you're perfectly what? Cohogent. Cohogent. He's perfectly cohogent. I have cohogens. <laughs> Snap. Snap. Click. Just like that. Yep. To go to Brighton. The old dream of dreams. To take her away and have her to himself. 
away from everybody, from Peter and Mickey, away from London, away from the noise, peacefully in the country or by the sea, a small hotel, not necessarily to sleep with her, just to have her to look at, to talk to quietly. That had been his idea of paradise once, but of course, it was too late now. It's creepy, isn't it? A bit. Nothing about has to have her to look at. But we're, here we are in Brighton. We are. We're in we've the, escaped the dark hell that is Earl's Court. We have. And, we've, and we've you made, and Andy. We've made it to Brighton. <laughs> the world of gin and its and beer. And we're uh, sitting behind the Brighton Pavilion. You can hear a little bit of Brighton busking going on in the background. It's very Brighton. Very Brighton. So. And we are, for those of you who don't know Brighton, Brighton Pavilion and the part, and the part behind it is just off Castle Square. Aha. And when George comes to Brighton, he gets the train down from Victoria on his own, planning for Nessa to come down later that evening, and well, no, the next day and meet him. Yep. So he'll spend the night in Brighton by himself. Um, and he says he was going to stay at the Little Castle, a small commercial just off Castle Square, because this was where he had stayed with Bob Barton in the Bob Barton days. And because he wanted to be on the ground, he knew. And because he knew it was reasonably cheap, and because he didn't have the energy and initiative anyway to break new ground and find an unfamiliar hotel. Castle Square is not really a square anymore. It's more of a no. meeting of roads. There is a side street off it, we've, uh, which is now part of the Brighton Arcade. Where the Market Tavern is. The Market Tavern is down there. Which used to be the Golden Fleece. Which, is, which offers itself as a bed and breakfast. Yes. But it looks a bit big to be a... He calls it a commercial. Yeah, so not, not a pub, therefore. But it is a hotel because it's got a porter. It's not like a boarding oh, house. Oh, yeah, 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 that's true. So um, there are no hotels there. The Royal Pavilion Pub, I saw above the sign there, it said it used to be the Royal Pavilion Hotel. Right. So... Could be that. Maybe that, but... But there was no little castle hotel that I've been able to find. No, he's made that up. He's made that up. He's made that up. But it must be based on a, on a hotel that was there. So anyway, he spends the, spends the day in Brighton, has a fairly pleasant time. He went and had a drink in East Street at once and then walked down to the front and had one at the old place where he'd warmed his wet trousers and had been so miserable about Netta. Then he walked round to the theatre. Mm-hmm. The whole narrow street was ablaze and electrically twinkling yep. with Albert Drexel and Cornford Hobbs. And as he approached the front of the theatre, he saw notices, stalls full gallery full. It was a great occasion, all right. He went into the terrible, plushed quiet of the foyer, the terrible, plushed quiet of a foyer of a show upon which the curtain has gone up and is doing enormous business. Right. So we think... We think gone, it's the, Well, he doesn't name the theatre, but given the way he gets here and the location and also the type of show he's going to, we're pretty sure it's the Brighton Hippodrome. The Brighton Hippodrome, which yeah. Which is standing outside right now. This is all of the noise on Middle Street. And as it says, it's a narrow street that runs down to the sea. Mm. You can imagine it. Yeah, completely. Lit up. It's so not plush now, though, is it? Blimey. The Grade 2 listed Brighton Hippodrome in Middle Street, Brighton, opened in 1901 and was a conversion of a former skating rink, originally built in 1897. What I'm looking at is a beige, pebble-dashed, derelict theatre. Yeah covered in graffiti yeah, of all Extinction sorts. Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion posters. And then the metal awnings, all the glass has been smashed out. It's rusted. 
quite a lot of the... For many year decades after the 1916 alterations, the Hippodrome was in use as Brighton's major variety theatre. Yes, OK. But in later years, it was relegated to use as a bingo hall. In 2014, the Hippodrome was under threat of redevelopment and conversion into an eight-screen cinema, which would have involved demolishing the stage. But that's been abandoned, and today the Sadlier's Theatre is closed and dark. Sure is. Looks very sorry for itself. It's very dingy. Uh, it's sad, really, because it's well, you can see it would have been absolutely magnificent. It does tie in, by the way, with the fact that the, the agents who the George is hanging out with are are involved in the Hippodrome in Leicester Square. There were, that's true, yeah. And I'd also like to point out that I think that the Albert Drexel and Cornford Hobbs, the two stars of the show, yeah. the, big, the big hit in 1940, I think I mentioned this before, is Arthur Askey. Arthur Askey. Yes. Hello, Playmates. Hello, I'm playmates. a busy little bee. Only be- Have you heard his Desert Island Discs? No. He's done it three times. He was on it three times. He lived that long. Yeah, yeah, he lived that long. They're all very good. Right. Okay. They're all about memories so of the theatre. That's cheating, though, because then the, he ends up getting 24 discs on the island. Yes, Did he you, does. Gee, that's not allowed. And three luxuries. Well, three islands, presumably. That can't be right. Yeah, it's like Richard Branson. Can't be right. But I'm assuming that Albert Drexel and Cornwall <coughs> Hobbs are a bit of a reference. They're those kind of people who are being sort of developed by the agents yes. for to, to do showbiz plus radio yes. and then film. Yes. Hamilton's at the cusp of that. Completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also, in a way, the, the last great blooming of that kind of British culture. Yeah, yeah. But then the only people who sustain it after the war yeah. are, um, is the BBC. Yeah, yeah. Is the cinema is taken over by the Americans, yeah. pretty much. The film yeah. industry's dead on its arse. Yeah. Um, classical theatre takes over the theatres. Yeah. And, and the music halls sort of die. Yeah. So this is probably the last great flourishing of that of, of anything essentially of an essential British entertainment culture, I'd say. Until the good old days comes on ITV. In well, the they, they can all come out of that. They, 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 yeah. they, they, Bruce Forsyth was yeah. was part of that crowd. Yeah. Well, I think all that Sunday night at the Palladium were variety shows, weren't they? Yeah, and then they were they, on the telly, live telly, yeah. and then they became game yeah. shows. Yeah. There's a direct continuum. So what we're saying really is that Patrick Hamilton is part of the you know he leads us naturally to the generation game. Yeah, and to Noel Edmonds. That's actually not a good thought. No wonder he turned to drink. Yeah. So do you um, fancy a round of golf? How straight it flew, how long it flew, it cleared the rutty track, and soaring disappeared from view beyond the bunker's back. A glorious sailing, bounding drive that made me glad I was alive. And down the fairway, far along, it glowed a lonely white. I played an iron, sure and strong, and clipped it out of sight. And spite of grassy banks between, I knew I'd find it on the green. And so I did. It lay content, two paces from the pin. A steady putt, and then it went, oh, most securely in. The very turf rejoiced to see this quite unprecedented three. Okay, the pro was a nice man and let him have quite a decent bag. I'll explain that to you in a minute. And explain the lie of the course, which began high up at the back of the town and led over the downs. So we're on East Brighton Golf Club, which is, starts at the east side of Brighton and heads up over the downs. We can't go out there at the moment because it's pouring rain. Very pretty. Well, it actually looks down at here, mate. 
Huh? Looks a bit down at heel. Oh, it's nice inside. Is it? It's lovely inside. Yeah. Oh, you see, could, uh, you been, walked in I've like you were owned the damn place, <laughs> and, and two people rushed out to greet you almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What and was I, that about? I, well, they, they wondered what I was doing in there, and they were saying, "Can we help you?" And I was like, "But then oh, when that, I said they that were great, great British phrase, I said we're, Can res- I help you? we're researching a podcast." So he came to he came here to play, and it's a section of the book which he's, he's absolutely kind of almost ecstatic with the way he plays golf. So he describes, he teed up at the first hole, a long short one, a difficult three downhill to a banked green. With delicious pomposity, he looked at his card for the length and decided that against the wind it was a spoon. Okay. What's a spoon? So a spoon is like a lofty club, like a wedge. So what's a wedge? <laughs> so basically, okay, rules of golf, Tim, you have to get round in a certain number of shots, okay? Yes. Point one. Now, the moment the... Um, What's called par, as in par for this course, is 72 shots for the whole gotcha. round. Okay. okay. On the first hole, par is four. Oh, they've got names. On the second Away hole, we go. Rodine Towers, par three. Third hole, Red Hill Crest, par four. Okay. Gotcha. So he's trying to, he says in the book he's trying to get round in 69. 69. And the, the implication is that's par. Never says it, but that's the implication. And he says that the first hole is a difficult par three. Now, it's not. It's par four. And um, the reason I just went into the office, because I, and I said, can you tell me, was par 69 in 1939? And they went... <laughs> but what they've done for me, rather beautifully, is they've what? printed out par on the length of holes for 1939. For 1939? Yeah, so hole one, 356 yards, par four. In, no, in 1939, par was 70, 74. 74. So getting around in 69 would be going like, around like five under. This is which is like championship winning golf. Fantasy golf. Yeah. He's basically, he's written down he's written a, a round that he'd like to have, but never had. But I, but I wonder, wonder if he, did he ever play it? I mean, he played golf, played quite a lot of golf. Did he? Yeah. So he must have played up here at some point, but he's got the scores completely wrong. He was pissed as a fart, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did say to them, he was drinking quite heavily by this time <laughs> in the office. Imagine he was taking a bottle of gin round with him, yeah, yeah. and every, every four became a three at that point. But this is, so this is it, this is where George comes to play golf. This is it? Yeah. Very good. And he had does, it is the happiest moment in the book, the only happy moment. It's the only bit when he's happy, isn't it? But of and, course, when, and when you do play, yeah. I mean, I know, I don't play very often, I play like maybe once a year. When you do play, when you do hit a good shot, it's like... You need to do some gin. Oh my God, that was amazing. <laughs> and then if you hit another good shot immediately afterwards, it's like, oh, it's like amazing squared. Do you think that his round is an illusion, that he's just euphoric? Well, 69, is That he's just, he thinks he's done that, it doesn't matter if he has or hasn't, he's just... He's making know, it up. yeah. That he's just delusional. We know he's a psycho. He's just delusional. Just says, "Yeah, dude, I got a 69. Brilliant." So Hamilton carefully nodding to us that this man's a psycho because ma- he's got the score at Eastern Golf Club completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose we should remember it's in a fictional golf course. Only psychopaths cheat at golf, presumably. And presidents. Well, we know that from from Moonraker. Oh, of James course, Bond yeah, yeah, is yeah. That, pe- that people who cheat at sports yeah. are very bad people. Yeah, not to be trusted. So, so, so this is it. This is it. And as they say, golf. Is a good walk ruined? Oh, well, <laughs> harsh. Go on, he rose from the bed and stared at the light of the dull green midnight. Nightmare gas. He must go to London and kill her at once. He looked at his watch. It was five and twenty past twelve. Could he get a train now? Probably not. Very well then. He would walk. He would walk to London and kill her at once. Hmm. 
What a good idea. He would like a walk, it would clear his head. He would walk the whole way back to London and kill her, and then walk on to Maidenhead. He walks out of London, out on the great motor road with its two white pillars, saying you were in Brighton and on to Pycombe. He meant to go via Hassocks and Burgess Hill. Occasionally a motor car or lorry blinded and flashed by him. He did not feel weary, but it occurred to him that he had a long way to go. Yeah. Half an hour later he was so tired and weak that he realised he would have to rest. He branched off to Hassocks and found a pub opposite the station where they stared at him, but on his producing money gave him breakfast and a room. He drew the curtains to and undressed and slept in his shirt. Very good. So, and we're here. We're in Hassocks. We're in Hassocks. We're in a pub called the Hassocks, in fact. We are. Another pub. Another pub. Too many pubs now. Even, I, I know I like pubs, but... How many pubs this, have we done in this a lot, podcast? There's a lot of pubs in this book. So Hassocks is about seven miles north of Brighton. Seven or eight miles. Yeah, so very walkable. And except for... When you drive it, as we did, you realise there's no pavements. And on Clayton Hill, where he walks up. Yeah. You, so it would, you have been a, it would take your life in your hands walking up there. We would be a sitting target. Yeah, you would have been. So I don't think for that... Another road, for another road. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not really buying it. I don't, th- I'm not, I don't really buy that, buy that Hamilton ever walked out here. Well, no. Maybe he did when he was very young. And he would kind of skip around the footpaths and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, but not on the road. Not on, the road. Not on the main road. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because he was born in Hassex. Ah, you're, yeah, you're showing lived, your biography skills. He now. lived in Dale House in Hassex. Okay. And they moved. They moved down to Hove when he was about four, three or four. Well, well that makes sense. That in the story, the reason why he's come this way is he had a fancy to see Apple Lodge. Well, where George has come this way? Yeah, he had a fancy to see Apple Lodge, a little farmhouse with cows and a donkey and ducks where he'd stayed as a child and been happy. It's all a bit uh, tenuous. Well, curiously unspecific, in fact. Well, apart from the pub. The pub is always specific. The pub is next opposite the station. The pubs have all turned out to be terrifyingly exactly accurate. Exactly where you'd And the journeys be. in between are a bit of a blur. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'd say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then he walks on to Burgess Hill the next day. And then gets a train from there into London. But... Yeah, it's a muddle again, because he, he could have taken the train. He says, he didn't go back to the hotel, but he began to walk on to London again. He now saw that there was no need to walk to London at all. He, he, he could easily take the train. He could easily take a train. And he didn't know how the idea had got into his head. Muddle again. My theory of why he has to do this... Yeah. is uh, he wants this book to end on the 3rd of September. He wants to be murdering Netta and yeah. then going to Maidenhead as and then hearing Neville Chamberlain say the words. Yeah. He wants the words of Neville Chamberlain saying, this country is at war, yeah. echoing out across his final yeah. denouement, doesn't yeah. he? And I wonder what happened was that he's realised he's a, he's a day out. He's got the dates wrong. He's got the dates wrong. And he needs to fill out another day before he gets there. So I better have a little walk around before I go do it. Well, I'll tell you what I would do in that situation. I would change the dates. <laughs> he can't change the date of the war. No, but you can change the other dates in the book. Oh, I see. Why does he not move everything back a day or forward a day? Back a day. Probably because he's a bit pissed and just thinks the best thing. I know. I know how to fix this. 
Or he's just trying to... just go for a walk for a bit. Or he's just trying to pad it out a bit. He's just going for a walk for a bit. Just to pad it out for Unless a bit. it's, yeah, the suspense of the relentless... Okay, he's not going to click back now. He's coming. He's no coming from Brighton in a relentless thing, and he's going to come and get you. And it's no definitely going to happen. There's no reason why this section is here at all. No, there's no reason why he walks to Hat. The walk to Hassocks is not not relevant. So his his killing of her is she was sitting up in the full already soapy bath facing him. All right, he said, trying to speak in a matter of fact tone. Don't bother. Don't bother. Don't be frightened. Don't bother. He saw her staring at him, first in surprise, then in terror. He saw that she was trying to speak, but that nothing would come from her throat. He saw that she was trying to scream, but that nothing would come out. Don't bother, he said. It's all right. Don't be frightened. Don't bother. Don't bother. He seized hold of her ankles firmly and hauled them up in the air with his great strength, his great golfer's wrists. Then he grasped both her legs in one arm and with the other held her unstruggling, under the water unstruggling she doesn't struggle she's probably a bit pissed as well isn't she she's at 8 o'clock in the morning I don't know they're all pissed all the time aren't they anyway he's golfers risks you see golfers are bad I'm telling you yeah can't but be trusted don't bother don't bother that's quite good isn't it it's really creepy I, you know what I'm thinking I'm, I might go to Maidenhead on my own what and what and top yourself I might leave you behind I got rid of Andy I just need to get rid of you. Yeah, yeah that's and true. And then I can go to Maidenhead. He died in the early morning, and because of the interest then pervading in the war, was given very little publicity by the press. Indeed, only one newspaper, a sensational picture daily, gave the matter any space or prominence, bringing out his crude epitaph, the headline, Slays 2, Found Gassed, Thinks of Cat. Click. Won't be long now. Next one. Some like football, some like dance I like knitting and the simpler arts Half a dozen needles, an ounce or two of wool Fills my cup of happiness, chock full I'm a little knit with knitting all the day That's how I keep dull care away Hemstitch, lockstitch, plain and pearl A present occupation for a good little girl Crack.